I'm uh, Gregory Shushan, and I'm the author of three books on near-death experiences and their relationship to culture and history. Um, the newest one is called The Next World, Extraordinary Experiences of the Afterlife. Um, and there are two previous ones, uh, Near-Death Experience in Indigenous Religions and Conceptions of the Afterlife in Early Civilizations. So I'm coming from, rather than a uh, you know, medical background of, you know, someone like Bruce Grayson um, or a theological sort of background. I'm coming from a, a really um, history of religions sort of background, which kind of encompasses um, anthropology and history and archaeology and mm. things like that. So a more of a cultural direction as opposed to a more empirical kind of perspective aspect. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So so the, the way that um, near death experiences are um, kind of processed in different cultures and, and how they become, you know, the reactions that people have to them as far as their beliefs go in, in the afterlife and life after death and things mm. like that. How long have you been looking at this kind of subject and how did you get started with your interest um, in it? It's been, wow, uh, over 20 years actually now. Yeah, 21, 22 years, something like that. Um, and it started because um, I've always been interested in near-death experiences um, in, in a sort of casual way, you know, not as a, as a scholar. Um, and I was doing my first degree in, in London at uh, University College London doing Egyptian archaeology. And I was reading, you know, texts like the Book of the Dead and the Coffin texts and Pyramid texts. And these are guides to the afterlife for um, for the dead, basically. So, so when, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead kind of thing. Um, so when somebody dies, the, the uh, instructions in these books kind of help to guide them through the other world. So these books are, are filled with all kinds of descriptions of, of what to expect. And as I was reading them, I thought, um, okay, leaving the body, uh, entering darkness, emerging into a realm of light, uh, meeting a being of light in the form of the sun god, Ray, um, and then having a sort of evaluative review of one's life assisted by this being of light. It was all sounding a little bit familiar, like, yes, um, yes. like NDEs. Sure. Um, I just started thinking, you know, is it possible that Egyptian afterlife beliefs might be somehow uh, related to, to near-death experiences um, and possibly even, even based on them, you know, somebody mm. In, in ancient times, had the one. And then, and then I remembered um, a book by Carol Zaleski called "Other World Journeys," and and that's about um, the relationship between medieval other world visions of monks and nuns, medieval Europe, um, and near death experiences. And she she compared um, those kind of literary uh, descriptions of voyages to the other world, which were supposedly based on actual experiences of, of these monks and nuns, and and wanted to see you know how they um, measured up essentially to, to the modern idea of near-death experiences. So, I, you know, I just thought if there's those similarities with medieval Europe, um, actual experiences or allegedly actual experiences, and then similarities with Egyptian beliefs and contemporary near-death experiences, what's going on here? Mm. So. <laughs> so it sounds like we have Although we're kind of looking at this, the same phenomena, we're looking at it in kind of with slightly different goals. Whereas my goal would be to kind of show evidence that they are genuine um, phenomena suggestive of a separate mind and, and body, or or at least a non-causational um, relationship between brain and mind. You're more looking at it as how it influenced 
our cultural understanding of religion and and, um, and near-death experiences compared to how they're perceived now from how they were. So I suppose, um, do, do you, am I right in thinking that I've read somewhere about your work that you look at the possibility that main religions that have been born today uh, or well, were born a while ago but still persist today may have come from experiences such as near-death phenomena. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of um, more specifically focus on uh, the relationship between afterlife beliefs and, and near-death yeah. phenomena. Um, but there is that kind of next step that, that one could take to say, well, um, you know, if there's ideas of, you know, these general conceptions of the afterlife and going to other other worlds and meeting these beings of light or whatever, can we take that a step further and think, well, if they're encountering that being of light um, and around the world, um, gods are often described as radiating light, then maybe, you know, that was the actual origin for the ideas of, mm -hmm. of divinities, was encountering these kinds of, uh, you know, alleged beings in these kinds of experiences, not, mm -hmm. not solely near-death experiences, but also know shamanic journeys or other kinds of mm. visions mm. i suppose looking specifically then at the beliefs of life after death uh, many believe these days and i suppose in a way common sense would dictate that these beliefs would have come up as a result of the human's mind's capability to begin to acknowledge that they are going to die and the fear that that would instill of non-existence for eternity mm. would give rise to kind of a comfort mechanism to i suppose delude oneself into believing that they will continue after death and so over time that belief has kind of um, been reinforced with religious views and things like that to become where it is today. Uh, that's mm -hmm. the main, I'd imagine the main, what most people would, would think of when they think of where did belief come from? What would, right. what, what, where do your views differ from that, I suppose? Or do they differ from that? Um, they do, yeah. I mean, I think, well, on the one hand, um, uh, I, I, I don't want to say that near-death experiences are solely responsible for all afterlife beliefs around the world, because there are plenty of cases where they're demonstrably not related at all, um, which we can we can get to later. But um, as far as um, that goes, I would say that you know whether near death experiences are evidence for an afterlife, or the, whether they're just the dying brain or whatever, um, to me it makes no sense to not look at them as possible origins for an afterlife belief, because they're demonstrated to be you know, occurring around the world and throughout history. So, and, and they're spontaneous, you know, they're not um, generated by culture. They might be culturally influenced, mm. uh, not might, they actually, you know, they demonstrably are, are. are yeah. culturally influenced, yeah. Um, so, but the, but the fact of their existence and the fact that people um, seem to die, um, seem to uh, leave their body and go to other worlds and report these strange experiences, um, you know, that's not disputable, basically. So to ignore that as a possible origin for an afterlife to me just seems, um, you know, would, it would just be um, willful, um, mm. obstinate ignorance. You know, it's mm. not even skepticism. It's just um, it's know, just it's ignoring the data that's there. Yeah. 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 It's, to me, it's, it's like flat earth kind of mm. belief, you know, it's a, mm. or, or any kind of, you know, zany theory. I mean, people think that this kind of thing is woo, -woo but um, not looking at evidence to me is actually far more. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pseudoscientific, <laughs> as they like to say. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. so it's kind of uh, flipping the pseudoscience on the on the um, extreme skeptics who who don't even want to look at look at the data as as a, as a cultural thing, let alone uh, evidence for an afterlife. Mm. So, 
um, focusing on, I suppose, the reality of the near-death experience from a, if you don't mind going on record, from a personal point of view, what are your beliefs in terms of what near-death experiences may be um, evidence of in terms of are they physical, are they evidence of a metaphysical nature of mind? What do you think personally or professionally, if you do have an opinion professionally? Yeah, um, I, I try not to actually. Mm. I try to um, to just stay objective about it. Um, partly figuring, um, you know, there re uh, there really is good evidence. I mean, I think I think for all the sort of um, you know survival type theories um, or or evidence from you know mediumship or reincarnation or whatever, I, I feel like near death experiences have the strongest evidence. So I, I wouldn't dismiss that easily um but at the same time um i can't pretend like i actually know you know <laughs> and, no, and i don't yes yeah. yeah, so i don't um and i don't believe things and i wasn't raised religious so so in my kind of uh mental world i either know things or i don't know them so it's quite easy for me to just kind of mm. hold that space of ambiguity you know? yeah well i suppose it, it i think you know it's reasonable to believe something as long as that belief is based on you know honest investigation of the evidence surrounding it. you know there's difference be right. between i suppose belief and what most people will call faith which yeah. some define faith as belief without evidence i wouldn't necessarily believe it like that but to put the terms contextually and comparatively together i think you know having a belief in something we we must have a belief in something because otherwise you know we have a belief that the laws of physics will remain constant we have mm -hmm. a belief of you know what the data has shown us in various different social science contexts so i think belief in in a possibility as long as we're open to change those beliefs in the light of mm -hmm. new evidence is, is perfectly reasonable yeah i think that's an excellent point and i think um i think belief in an afterlife is perfectly reasonable i think it's it's kind of inference to the best rational judgment you know is mm. um could very easily lead somebody to to a rational belief in the afterlife mm. and that that can be as far as i'm concerned wholly separate from religion or from even from theism i, I think there can be an afterlife without any kind of deity or yeah or, i would um, agree yeah 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 and, and that also can be seen um or conceptualized as a as a not necessarily a physical process but an, an evolutionary process of mm -hmm what it is to to be human to use a hackneyed phrase mm -hmm. um you know um just it's it's part of what happens it's not necessarily anything yes. supernatural or no, no kind of miracle or anything like that no i, right. I yeah. agree and I, I would say that you know the question of the afterlife and what it if it exists or not is a matter for science to, to question as opposed to religion mm -hmm. because it especially from your work going back many years and interculturally as well these phenomena are effectively, despite differences in interpretation, are effectively identical in their foundations. And that would suggest to me that near-death experiences or an afterlife, if they imply an afterlife, are, you know, species-wide, human-wide, regardless of background. So to me, that's a nature of conscience and a nature of humanity question, and therefore a scientific question, as opposed to right. a religious one. Um, because it will underlie a nature of the human being that, as of yet, our laws of science can't comprehend yet right yeah I, w I would agree with that I, I don't think well I I mean I, I think that there's maybe um, each type of field can learn from each other so I, mm. I think that you know um, religion probably does and I'm not talking about Christianity I'm talking about any kind of 
um, belief in non-physical entities around the world, whatever definition you want to give to to religions, you know. Um, but it's, I would say most specifically, Buddhism probably has um, a lot to teach science, just as science has a lot to teach religion as well. I, I'm not um, really, um, as far as the science and religion type people go, um, this the the idea of kind of accepting science and then trying to shoehorn it into an existing religion. This is often done in, with Christianity. Mm. Um, that to me doesn't ever quite sit well because it feels like, you know, desperately trying to hang on to certain beliefs, yeah. but finding it impossible to ignore the scientific um, mm. evidence as well. well that, that's, a, that's a top-down form of, of science, you know, top-down yeah. force of ontology, finding, you know, you have a predetermined conviction that something must be true and then you only go looking for evidence that supports that and ignore any evidence that, it, that discounts it. Right. Um, you know, it's a form of bias which is incredibly strong and prevalent throughout everybody. To it's just to right. which degree do you recognise it and um, diminish its effects? And that's right. I suppose where scientists must and do successfully more than most other people. They do have the ability to do that and be, be, right. uh, become more objective. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, that's sort of the approach I tried to take with with my research because uh, you know uh, archaeology is is a sort of semi scientific. Uh, subject and, and so I was trained in archaeology, um, so I, you know, I kind of came to this from from a very determined, you know, evidence based kind of approach and, and from a secular approach and you know, I wouldn't say, yeah, I would guess I would say atheistic approach because you know I'm I'm um, I'm on the fence about the afterlife and things like that, but I don't I wasn't raised believing in any kind of um, religion or deities mm. or anything like that. So, so what I wanted to do was. Um, Yes, I, I was looking at different religions and beliefs around the world to determine um, whether near-death experiences influenced their afterlife beliefs, but I wasn't really going in to prove that they did, if, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm. So, um, so for my um, second study that I did on indigenous religions, um, that was interesting because um, I expected, you know, I kept running across things that would kind of challenge mainstream thought in whatever field. So, so for example, um, with Mesopotamian religion, uh, you read everywhere in all the summaries of, of ancient Mesopotamian afterlife beliefs that they didn't have any kind of positive experience. Everybody went to some gloomy realm mm. and they just kind of um, stayed in this limbo-like state and sort of semi-suffering and um, half-light and, and just like not really a proper... Not a nice place afterlife. to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but then I start reading um, the the text myself, you know, firsthand. I'm, I'm always going back to the original editions in translation, of course, because I can't, you know, master every language. <laughs> but um, and I started finding all these references to beings of light, um, judgment, other worlds, um, deceased relatives, you know, all these kinds of things that were not exactly um, doom and gloom. So uh, when I went into doing the indigenous religions, I thought. Um, you know, with African afterlife beliefs, there was this kind of, uh, in a similar way, this common thing that um, they don't really have otherworldly afterlife beliefs. It's more about the ancestors remaining uh, near the community uh, in the forest or whatever, um, and kind of helping to placate their, their wrath or encourage their good um, mm. wishes onto the society or whatever. Um, so I, I kind of went into that thinking, well, because it was so consistent with, with the other stuff, and I'd already done the Native American chapter in the Pacific, I thought um, I'm probably going to find lots and lots of examples of African afterlife beliefs that are similar to NDEs. 
or, and even African NDEs, um, but I didn't. I, I hardly found any, so um, which was interesting because um, it made me think, you know, what what's going on that um, in African societies. I don't want to generalize too much because Africa is a giant continent with lots and lots of different traditions and cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was definitely an overall sort of pattern that um, their afterlife myth didn't really involve near-death experience type accounts, you know, going to other realms and coming back. In fact, they have a lot of myths about why people don't come back to life. Um, and then the few near-death experiences I did find or references to them, they uh, were more about uh, the person, seeing the person who came back as being possessed or a victim of witchcraft uh, or some other um, kind of sorceress entity that mm-hmm. was now a threat to society. You know, they didn't you know, flock to the bedside of the person who came back and, and their loved one, um, you know, they're all excited about it. They actually run or they start throwing stones at them or whatever. So um, you know, these are cultural dynamics where near-death experiences aren't really allowed to be um, expressed in, in the culture. Right. So they're not right. going to be absorbed into their afterlife beliefs. There's kind Indeed, of pre-existing yeah. restrictions on them. Mm. Indeed. So let me just try and think of where we can go from there. So where do you think the aspects of the near-death experience are found that are, that are similar throughout many cultures? What, what are the aspects of the near-death experience that you hear a lot in the afterlife beliefs of, of cultural beings? Are, are they very similar at the foundations to how they are, how they're experienced now and reported now? You, they are um, in in very general ways, and and I and I really want to stress that because this is something that upsets both sides of of the argument potentially because um, there's a vested interest on the side of um, you know materialist scientists who want to say it's a dying brain. Um, in order for it to be a dying brain, the effects of the NDE have to be basically the same throughout the world, right? So, um, you know, the tunnel is the narrowing of the vision and all that stuff. But um, there is no tunnel in, in most societies. There's darkness, but there's no rushing through an architectural narrow mm. tunnel. Mm. And, um, you know, Alan Kelly here brought this up, you know, a long time ago in the, in the 90s and had a debate with Susan, Susan Blackmore, Blackmore, like, that's right. yeah, are there tunnels in India? No, there are, yes, there aren't. Um, and, and there just aren't tunnels in, in most of the world. Um, there's a uh, life reviews are actually quite rare around the world. Um, and I, and again, Alan Kelly here was, was, you know, the first to say, um, to predict this, um, he was basing this just on a handful of, um, indigenous NDEs. And he said, um, there's less of a focus on the self, on the individual and in these, you know, small scale kind of communities. And they're more about the overall community and the benefit to the community. So he thought, um, a life review wouldn't be really relevant because it's not about that individual and what they did and and um you know it, it's not a um self-motivated sort of culture mm. and he predicted that um life reviews would be rare in small-scale indigenous societies around the world and that's exactly what i found you know looking at you know probably a hundred accounts or something so um so those are some differences as far as similarities just very broadly entering darkness um, light, um, a being that's often radiating light that's, you know, a sort of non-human, described as a non-human type entity. Um, the afterlife being a place of transformation, um, 
virtually always in a positive way. Um, it's not necessarily like they, they come back and um, there's a, a, you know, like in the West, it's often you have to go back and be a better person and um, look after your loved ones or whatever. It's, it's a very culturally situated thing. So there's Native American accounts who are like, go back and tell people that wife beating is no longer okay. Mm. So, um, or, or to stop wasting resources on burning offerings to send to the ancestors in the other world because they're not getting them, they don't care. You know? mm. um, so it's kind of things that are, whatever the cultural benefit is to the community, then that's, um, you know, that, that's what it's going to be kind of mm. focused in that way. Um, well, that, oh, and, and meeting uh, relative, deceased relatives or ancestors is um, probably the most common, one of the most mm. common anyway. The idea of the community beneficial information doesn't sound that different really to how it is now because the information although there is a life review and they focus on the individual's life and how they've it always looks at how their individual lives have affected other people and how they it, when they come back they need to learn you know how to love everybody regardless of you know what they think of them effectively to put it very basically and you know how to work further to increase humanity's happiness and right. that's kind of yeah. that, that strikes me as a more cultural thing rather than a personal thing although there are personal aspects to that right yeah and one of the very common things um all around the world is is they need to go back in order to tell people that there's an afterlife and to tell them that there's this you know better world to come and things like that mm. which is i think it's quite interesting mm. A lot of people, and I'm not sure if you've gone into this at all, but a lot of people seem to be of the belief, again quite reasonably I think, that a lot of afterlife beliefs, and maybe some religions to some degree, were shaped not only by near-death experiences as you say, but also by things like um, the mushroom, you know, the hallucinogenic drug, mm. DMT for other for Southern American cultures, and things like that. Um, of course giving them glimpses allegedly into other dimensions with other beings and such um how do you think that would fit in as well to cultural afterlife beliefs and maybe our current afterlife beliefs over time yeah i think um i think that's a good possibility that that happens um i i do tend to think that um well in some cases in um you know some native american societies and in, in the pacific as well there are examples where um you know th those kind of practices are used deliberately to go to the other world and follow the soul of somebody who's dying or who who appears to have already died and the shaman will you know take take the whatever hallucinogen hallucinogens um and go after that soul in order to bring them back it's called soul retrieval um and essentially if they're successful then that person whose soul they went after had an nde so you know they woke up and came back to life so in a sense, um, I do wonder if in, if in many cases um, those kinds of experiences were intended to replicate NDEs or at least um, send the shaman into the same realm um, for the purpose of rescuing that, that person. So it's kind of the same complex of knowledge, um, if you know what I mean, rather than, um, um, I don't know, I, I tend to think that because of the context of NDEs that the person is... Um, you know, evidently dead for for a period of time. Um, that's more likely to be um, the originating type of experience for an afterlife than a shamanic experience. Mm -hmm. um, if the shamanic experience happened in absence of knowledge of NDEs, 
I don't know if people would automatically believe that they went to an afterlife realm rather than like the realm of the gods or the realm of spirits or, or whatever. Yeah, so I suppose the near-death experience would have initiated the idea of an afterlife and then the psychedelic experiences would have kind of would have been implied that that's kind of the same place because of the prior knowledge in near-death right. experiences. Right, or the other way around, that, that way once around. people, you know, people were having these shamanic experiences and then people had the NDEs and they said, okay, there's the context for it. Mm. Um, and especially if they found themselves able to access, access the same kind of reality. I mean, if soul retrieval was an actual thing, then, you know, that would be mm. kind of proving that that's one in the same state of being anyway. Mm. Many neuroscientists today believe that near-death experiences are effectively psychedelic trips, I suppose, that are initiated mm. in the dying brain um, for whatever reason, by some mechanism. Uh, usually they think the pineal gland releases a lot of DMT, but a recent study by Grayson and others, is it recent? It's, it's relatively recent, um, that looked at the the words that people use to describe um, DMT trips and near-death experiences. I forget the name of the type of study. Uh, but it's, mm. it's a form of you know content analysis. Okay. And they, semantic analysis, I think it's called. And they mm -hmm. found that ketamine and DMT were among the most common or the most similar experiences to near death experiences. And many, right. um, many scientists of a variety of natures, but especially neuroscientists, do believe that, that, that the brain does release these chemicals at death, um, mm -hmm. which gives rise to near death experiences. So, do, have you found in your research any distinct similarities? between um, near-death experiences derived organically from being near death and the shamanic um, ritualistic experiences of, of DMT and other chemicals and have you seen any mention between the two comparing them? Uh, yeah uh, and in fact um, you know in, in even in cultural terms they often see them as being the same type of, of thing the same type of experience so there's a um, African religion called uh, Bwiti, B-W-I-T-I, and they take a drug called um, Ibogaine, which is related to their the deity that they encounter, Iboga, um, and this is seen as an actual death, and um, and they have they're very very similar to near death experiences. I would say though that um, often drug experiences of the afterlife seem to be um, even more culturally elaborated than. Um, you know, actual spontaneous near-death experiences. Mm. So, um, which is an, an interesting factor. I don't know if that's, um, uh, you know, what, what could possibly account for that. Maybe it's because um, they know that they're taking a, the drug. Maybe it's, it's it could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's some kind of, um, um, you know, expectation mm. going along with the drug use. I mean, you, you could speculate so many different things, but you know, until we actually understand the nature of how these psychedelics work on our minds, you know, we, we would just be speculating for eternity. <laughs> right, so, right. Yeah. But I do think that, you know, in, until, um, and this is, this is part of the problem and part of the importance of the cultural research is that, um, you know, there's, since, since NDEs first became discovered in the West, you know, they were obviously known throughout the world before they were given the name near-death experience, by Moody in 1975, but before the sort of formalization near-death studies. Um, well, since then, rather, um, there's been this kind of, um, you know, 
I see it as almost like beating the head against the brick wall, trying to trying to narrow down what is a near death experience, mm. what what is what are the um, the main features that can define a near death experience. So um, you know, even with Moody, but with Grayson and and whatever other scale that happened, they're they're all really useful, but they're also um, a series of sub experiences from which a yes. near death experience can be drawn. And no two two near death experiences are exactly alike, and so to me, that very thing um, makes any kind of materialistic dying brain physiology physiological explanation really problematic, um, because you should be able to identify the exact elements of a near death experience if it's all a physiological process, mm. and it happens around the world. And I think even so, you know, the, the furthest you could get with a physical explanation is, is brain to experiential correlations. Again, without that initial idea of how non-conscious matter can give rise to consciousness, again, you're always going to hit the hard problem of consciousness. And all you mm -hmm. can really give is correlationary evidence or correlationary, you know, well, correlations. Right. Yeah, that's mm. a good point, too. Mm. So um, the main research it seems that you look at it look into is the kind of the subjective aspect of the of the near-death experience and how they're similar which is very important information certainly however, however my main interest from and of course we have different kind of research goals mine is to show the evidence that near-death experiences are evidence of a non-local consciousness so i'm more interested in things like veridical perception right. where someone will come out of body and see something they naturally should not have been able to see whether because mm -hmm. of their brain state or because it was in a distance far removed from their location at the time right. have you um i'd like to kind of know your opinion on that kind of aspect of the near-death experience generally and also if you've heard or read or come across any examples from ancient times or from other cultures um, and how that feeds into your research yeah there there are um, quite a lot actually from mm. from the um cross-cultural evidence um, first one that comes to mind, there's a, a Native American account of a guy who, who died and left his body on a battlefield, and he was able to see you know, vertical perceptions of all kinds of things going on in his community, and he saw his mother and, and all these other things. Um, and there's even, you know, going back to um, a Sumerian myth, there's a, a, a lot of these myths happen to gods, but... Um, you know, because it was believed that these gods had once been people on Earth, then it, you know it might be that they're grounded in in near death experiences that were ancient, even when these myths were being written. Yes, yes. Um, but there's an example of of a god named Damu who um, dies, and he's trying to get his family to hear him and to listen to him, and he's like, you know, going up to them, um, trying to communicate and failing because they can't hear him because he's in a you know an out of body state. Uh, and that's that same thing happens in Native American accounts and in various other accounts. Um, there's other kinds of um, evidential stuff that that I've found. There's a peak and Darien experiences. Um, there may be four or five that I found mm -hmm. in in the indigenous cultures. Um, and peak and Darien experiences are where someone will come out of their body and get a communication from someone who's dead but wasn't known to be dead at the time. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and then they come back to life and find. You know that person had actually died true. Yeah. during the near-death experiences right. that, that mm. they were having so there was no way to know um, that that person was was dead and to me even though technically anecdotal that's some of the strongest 
um, yeah. evidence for, for NDEs. Well, it's, it's really, you know, it's only anecdotal until it's verified by someone else. Right. And then it becomes, right. you know, then it becomes valid data. As far as I'm concerned, people disagree, yeah. but. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are, those are really fascinating. And again, that's, there's no um, cultural context for, for that kind of experience. It's not like that's part of any culture's tradition that um, oh, we're going to go have Pekindarian experiences now. Um, these are totally spontaneous things. Um, but there is a real concern around the world for um, NDEs uh, to be shown as being veridical. So they will often come back and, and really emphasize things like that. Like, I didn't know that this person was mm -hmm. dead. Um, sometimes it's, uh, they, you know, they stretch the imagination and sometimes they're obviously done for cultural purposes. So for example, um, there's an, an ancient Chinese account where the guy dies and goes to the other realm. And it's, it only makes sense much later in this narrative when he comes back and meets somebody he met in the other world who was having an, an NDE at the time who gave him some kind of symbolic political prophecy about mm. what land is going to be taken by what people and what who's going to be the next emperor and things like that. Mm. So um, to me, that's on the one hand, it's very obviously um, a cultural, religious, political construct. You know, it was very obviously made to convince people to sanction whatever was going on in that moment. Like this person um, should be on the throne because it was, you know, predicted by to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it clearly shows evidence for near-death experiences and Pekindarian experiences that were, you know, probably grounded in um, knowledge of, of actual experiences. So, and as you say, you know, many who are uh, are critical of these don't take into consideration that, you know, as well as near-death experiences, there are also many other forms of anomalous experience that even, you know, existed throughout time, throughout cultures, that also. Mm -hmm are suggestive of their their reality as you say mediumship experiences um, right. general out-of-body experiences psi remote mm -hmm. viewing things like that that um i'm sure have been practiced for many years by many different religions maybe in the context of you know shamanism and, and whatever else or black uh -huh. magic as it would have been seen in the medieval times the occult right um so what do you think i suppose slightly coming off of your general research what is your your thought on the on the state of of near-death evidence because it is very highly controversial among the scientific circles yeah um well i would say that that i haven't seen anything um that convinces me that it's you know a physiological all in the brain kind of experience um because again with the cross-cultural evidence they they just haven't been able to accommodate it as far as i can i'm concerned mm. And they also, you know, I, again, I don't know the um, the scientific um, world as much as I do the cultural world, but mm. um, but I haven't seen any valid argument against things like Pekindarian experiences or, you know, Samparnia's aware study um, where, where he was able to to pinpoint, um, you know, the exact moment when his subject was out of the body and having these. Um, you know, seemingly evidential experiences of the operating room. So, um, yeah, I, I just, um, it's difficult for me to, um, to, to assess that. Yeah. yeah, because because I don't have the, the scientific knowledge. But at the same time, everything that I have read, um, I haven't seen things that are compelling to me 
um, enough that that seem to actually explain it. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then this is, you know, the, the, it's almost like the more I read it, the more I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, um, yeah, there, there's nothing. There's no reason I feel like anybody should dismiss this stuff out of hand. Mm. It's it's good that you are in a state where you don't know because that at least means you're honest in your in your right. <laughs> want to to actually investigate it. So many people are it's impossible, therefore it's not worth looking at, or you know, it's it's nonsense because the Bible tells me otherwise, and that's it. You know, yeah. With that yeah, sort of mindset, with that sort of mindset, you know, there's no way to scientifically develop these 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 interesting phenomena. Right. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to point out that, um, you know, as much as my work might be frustrating for, for people, for, you know, physiological researchers who want NDEs to all be the same around the world, it's also frustrating for, you know, evangelical Christian types or a lot of people who, who even have had NDEs and had a specific type of NDE and believe they saw Jesus or whatever. Um, they want that to be the NDE that everyone has because it's truth and any di you know, mm -hmm. digression from that or, or diversity of NDEs, mm -hmm. they must not be true or you know, there's some problem yeah. with it. Yeah. There's a difficulty for some people to ex accept the diversity of NDEs, I think. Mm. I suppose a way to think about that is that you know, if you go to Paris, for instance, to the Eiffel Tower and then you have a look at the beauty of Paris, Everybody would be seeing the same Paris if you sent a thousand people there. Everybody would be seeing exactly the same Paris, but mm. they would all have different opinions of it, and they would see it in slightly different ways depending on their cultural background, their state of mind at the time, you know, their moods, their gender, right. because yeah. obviously different hormones can have different effects, uh, and whatever time of the year it is, things like that. But it's the same. They're all seeing the same thing, mm -hmm. but in slightly different ways. And I think the near-death experience is, is similar to that in a way. It's yeah. just more directly... Um, affected by culture whereas um, so for example the, the phenomena of seeing a being of light is seen throughout many if not you know the vast majority of near-death experiences however if you're Christian you may see that as an image of Jesus if mm -hmm. you're a Buddha you may see that as the image of, of Gautam the Buddha if you're right. a Hindu you may see that as an image of Krishna or whoever else I'm not good with religions I've never really studied them but that's all good <laughs> yeah, good. But um, generally, you know, what they're seeing is the same. It's a being of light, but maybe that being is presenting itself in a way that makes them more comfortable to understand the experience. So, right. yeah, that's yeah. a very Tibetan Buddhist way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. um, though I also wonder, rather than rather than it being the being of light who's presenting themselves in a certain way, it might be the experiencer uh, projecting Indeed. their own symbolism and beliefs and expectations mm -hmm. he, onto this. Yeah. Right under this being that we don't know and what identity in, it might have or if it even has an identity even if, indeed and indeed if if these experiences are largely malleable by the mind as especially when people come out of body they say they're able to kind of think of something and be there or think of something and have it manifest right. if these are primarily mind orientated experiences then of course you would expect that one's cultural beliefs and one's mindset at the time would dictate and project um i suppose a, a painting onto the experience mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think um, I, I write about that actually in, in my new book um, where I'm talking about given all the diversity of NDEs around the world um, and the descriptions of the afterlife and mediumship and in reincarnation, um, intermission memories of the state between lives, 
because um, I compare all those in the book as well with with NDEs. Um, you know, once taking, you know, we have to accept all this diversity. Um, so, given that, what kind of afterlife could be philosophically and metaphysically even conceivable um, mm -hmm. in that point? And and it's very much like like what you just said. I, I kind of think that it, it would have to be something like um, there is some kind of objective reality, but we um, we clothe it with our own minds in a way. So, so it's like. Um, you know, possibly like a shared lucid dream mm -hmm. where we're all sort of co-creating the reality, but we're still seeing it in different ways. So that's why when, you know, if you have a Native, a Native American NDE, um, they come back and they said, I went to the spirit village. And there's even a drawing of, of one um, from the 19th century where he's he drew teepees and he drew um, his family coming to greet him on horses. Um, whereas if you have somebody else, you know, in... in you know, Victorian or Edwardian time, and you have somebody in England who goes and they find this, you know, idealized version of, of England with thatched cottages and, um, you know, every green rolling hills and all those kind of things. So they might be seeing the exact same thing. It's just that their subconscious is projecting um, the, the kind of familiar imagery onto it. Mm. Okay, so what is the, the new book that you've written what is the aim of, of that for people to get uh that it's partly um to make a lot of this stuff accessible to a wider audience um my first two books were published with academic presses and while i don't see them as you know um restrictively academically written or anything um the marketing is towards yes. an academic audience yes. which means you know um, for one thing, uh, you know, this incredibly ugly cover of this book, right. 65 pounds. And then this one, they did a better cover, but it's still, you know, having something dollars. Um, it still does have, um, you say academic undertones to it, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Um, this one's luckily going to have a paperback next year, so that will be right. more available. Um, but yeah, the, so the new book, I wanted to get some of these ideas, um, out into the world. So there's some summaries of, of that, but. Um, also kind of going a few steps further. So example, for example, looking at some of these difficult problems and difficult questions about NDEs in light of the cross-cultural diversity. So um, for example, looking at, um, there's one chapter on um, uh, divine revelations in NDEs, uh, going back to the kind of evidential stuff where um, people will have an NDE and meet being of, beings of light and they're given particular kind of information to bring back. And sometimes it turns out to be evidential um, or, or just a positive thing. Um, like, like we said, um, you know, some kind of benefit to the community, some change that the community should make. Uh, but then sometimes it turns out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there was a really interesting study by Kenneth Ring in I think um, 1988, something like that, um, where he found a lot, a lot of um, precognitive NDEs, this kind of prophetic NDEs that people were having, had very similar patterns to them. They were all saying things like, um, the world is going to end, and it's going to end in the late 80s or early 90s. Um, well, not, not the world's going to end, but there's going to be a global catastrophe, right. and whether it's environmental or nuclear or what. Um, and it's going to be then followed by this golden age where there's going to be, you know, everything wonderful is going to happen on earth and this whole 
renewal of um, culture and society and a new era of, of brotherly love and all this stuff. Um, and obviously none of that happened. But what was interesting about it was um, most of them said the same dates. Most of them said very similar kinds of things were going to happen. And then in the UK around the same time, uh, Margot Gray, um, unbeknownst to, to each other, um, she did a study um, with very, very similar kinds of claims from mm -hmm. indie years having these, these kinds of um, you know, prophetic visions. So, um, you know, that raises the question of why are there false um, information, yes. Yes. false predictions coming out of NDEs. Mm. Um, and shared then, so widely amongst different people in, in identical ways. Right, yeah. And I mm. think, you know, Ken Ring's um, interpretation of that was, was exactly spot on. And in fact, is replicated in some of the 19th century Native American accounts and, and even earlier, where um, there seems to be this link between um, a sort of symbolic link between the death and rebirth of an individual and the death and rebirth of a society. So, so they often, um, NDEs often um, come out into the public realm, the public sphere, um, when there are um, difficulties going on in the world mm -hmm. and, and people listen to them at that point. And there's lots of examples um, of Native American accounts where they came back from the other world and said, um, you know, we must resist these colonizers. We have to fight back. We have to start um, renewing our own culture. And here's a new dance. They brought back the ghost dance, for example, um, which will get us in touch with the ancestors. And essentially that ghost dance was a way of replicating NDEs. It was accessing the same reality that NDEs were getting to. But the whole theme around um, the whole movement and the whole message was cultural renewal and rebirth of their culture and society. Mm -hmm. So, so that's um, it, it's it, uh, it's a whole different additional layer to whether they're veridical or not, whether it's the dying brain or whether it's symbolic. It's almost like um, the the um, ND is creating cultural developments in a certain yes, way. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think throughout your 20 years of research would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned in regards to near-death experiences and the belief in life after death or your own beliefs in life after death? Um, I would say, academically speaking, I would say that, that it's um, the diversity of NTEs around the world in relation to the similarities. I think that's kind of the main thing um, that, that I've shown and also that... Um, you know, there is literally no dispute that um, religious beliefs around the world can be based on near-death experiences. And this is replicated at the kind of individual level where so many people who have NDEs change their beliefs um, as a resu result of the experience. So it stands to reason that then, you know, when religions are first being born, um, that that would have a knock-on effect on the community. So um, it's partly that. It's partly also... Um, you know, one sort of message that beyond the academic stuff that I think is maybe valuable for people is that given all this diversity, um, for one thing, you don't necessarily need to fear death, regardless of what your religion has taught you. Um, for another thing, no religion and no individual has a monopoly on the afterlife. Um, I, I think that um, anybody, um, especially religious authority figures, you know, the phrase toxic theology comes up a lot lately. And I think that um, with near-death experiences in the afterlife, that's really relevant because there are a lot of people in this world who are terrified 
um, of death. They're really afraid of dying because they feel like, you know, oh no, what, what if something I said or did is going to send me to hell? What if I'm going to have this horrific experience? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I hope that um, that acceptance of the diversity of the afterlife will not only reassure people, for one thing, that um, your priest or whoever is not necessarily correct in what they're telling you and you don't necessarily need to be afraid. And in fact, most near-death experiencers would tell you that um, you shouldn't be afraid. And, and to me, um, they're more um, qualified to say that than, than a priest yes, or agree. religious figure yeah. who hasn't had a near-death experience. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, um, I think, one of the, the kind of main mm. uh, messages. Um, as far as my own beliefs go, um, I, I, you know, I never really had a, a big fear of death anyway, but this is kind of, doing all this research has, has really uh, cemented that, that lack of fear of death in me. And, I, and it's, um, you know, like everybody would probably say, you know, I don't want to leave behind my family or my dog. And sometimes I think, oh, what about all these, these nice rare book collection I have or whatever. Um, but ultimately, you know, getting beyond that, um, there's not really uh, any kind of fear of death. And that's not necessarily because I believe I'm going to survive it and go to another realm and have a, a wonderful life with my, you know, deceased relatives in paradise. But I do know that, um, you know, I will probably have this glorious experience as I'm dying that's going to make me think that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's going to be this, you know, um, amazing experience anyway, even if my consciousness just kind of disappears right after mm. the NDE phase. Mm -hmm. so. Sure. And then I won't care anymore. No, absolutely. Well, you won't even be around to care anymore. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that people, and, you know, it, I can seem to people who are terrified of death because my, my whole anxiety disorder and depression focuses around it, but more less oh, because yeah. of, a hair, of a hell, more because of the fear of never existing again for eternity. That terrifies me. Um, right. Although it, it shouldn't really because I wouldn't be there to experience that nothingness, but I think it, it's just the, trying to conceptualize nothingness forever and forever mm. is a hell of a long time, is a yeah. very, well, it's an impossible thing to conceptualize. Um, but, you know, so my own research has convinced me, not convinced me, but has put me strongly on the side that there is some sort of continuation of consciousness after death. We don't know the nature of it, but there's enough evidence for me now to say it's reasonable to believe that. Right. And it's interesting that, um, you know, what you just said about the fear of non-existence and, um, it's a, it kind of highlights the very different, um, I mean, that's a very cultural thing because if you look at in Buddhism, for example, where, where that's sort of the ideal is to get off this cycle of one rebirth after another where, we're, mm. where we have to go through this, these lives over and over and over. And it's seen as like this almost tragic thing. And the goal is to, is to transcend that. Um, and it's interesting that in a lot of new age Kind of interpretations of, of reincarnation or new age perspectives of it um it's a goal and it's seen as this like wonderful thing oh well i get to come back mm. and i get to be um you know go back into my um group of of friends or family in another form you know i might end up being my um you know my niece's baby or whatever mm. Mm. um or, or my family my family's family dog something like that and it's seen as this you know great thing so that's a really interesting um you know cultural difference i think 
it is it certainly and it, it does really highlight the different i mean there are so many differences in the not only the kind of the cultural ideas of death but also in the cultural ideas of morality and things like that and science in the western and eastern worlds you know it is literally two different completely different worlds um but i mean the whole idea of and the evidence towards past lives and, and future lives i suppose and reincarnation is a whole other field which is huge and very very strong in my opinion but we probably won't have time to get into that now so i suppose just to finish off um what kind of research are you planning to to continue doing in the future i'm doing um now i've been doing for a long time this um historical anthology of ndes because i thought um it's one thing to read in my books kind of some summaries of them or excerpts of ndes from around the world and, and throughout history but i thought um it'd be really interesting to have a whole book that's nothing but verbatim accounts going back mm. to, you know, um, I don't know, uh, the earliest one's probably going to be from the, the um, Sumerian king Bilgamesh, who is later known as Gilgamesh in the ep Epic of Gil Gilgamesh. The earlier text, there's a very um, NDE-like myth about him. And most of them are going to be, um, you know, strictly documentary, but these earlier ones, it's, it's kind of iffy of what's truth and you know, what's documentary and what's myth. Mm, so, mm. Um, so yeah, I'm doing, doing that. Hopefully that will be done next year. Um, the next big study is going to be um, near-death experiences in classical antiquity uh, because there are eight or ten examples at least. Um, and it's clear that NDEs were, were widely known in, in you know, ancient Greek and Roman mm. worlds. Uh, but I think it has they haven't really been explored in, in enough depth. Uh, and part of that's going to be um, looking at ancient mystery cults in light of near-death experiences, because I think they might have been a kind of ritual reenactment of, of an NDE. Right. Sounds interesting, yeah. certainly, and certainly very yeah. valid to the whole field of near-death research in, in, right, both, yeah. in both aspects of it. Yeah. Okay, so where I could... I should also say just one more thing, that um, a, a little plug for... Um, I've started a new imprint um, of White Crow books, who you probably know, um, called Afterworlds Press. And that's oh, a yes. kind of specialty niche of publishing um, a lot of the books that have inspired me. Some of them reprints and some of them will be new. So for example, um, this was a, a great book on Native American um, afterlife myths and near-death experiences that he didn't have a name near-death experience at the time because it was 1957 um but he's very much talking about how ndes um influenced afterlife beliefs and kind of the intersection with with shamanism and it's a remarkable book because it was published um in a tiny edition in sweden in 1957 at 48 dollars um even back then so now it's like you know to be able to put it out now finally in like a, an accessible edition is is pretty great and then the second one we've done is um, another pre-Moody book about near-death experiences by a um, German Lutheran minister. Um, and this is a really interesting book because it came out the same year as um, Life After Life, mm. but he took a very different approach. In, in fact, you, you might enjoy it on a personal level because it's very much about um, trying to reconcile death and non-existence on earth um, with what we can learn from near-death experiences. And he talks about um, dying, he, he looks at NDEs as dying before you die. Um, so it's a really kind of profound theological, metaphysical sort of meditation on NDEs rather than going straight to like 
what is the scientific meaning of right. them, which I, I thought was really interesting, considering, you know, the, the era when it was written. Yes, absolutely. Okay, great. So yeah. where can where can people find you? Gregory Shushan, yeah, com uh, website, um, afterworldspress.com for these books. And I also have a Patreon page, which is um, patreon.com slash Gregory Shushan, I think. Um, and that's just if people want to, you know, subscribe to my um, historical near-death experience of the month that I send out and occasionally give out free books, uh, free PDFs, things like that. 